Welcome to Everything Leftover, our podcast on HBO's The Leftovers. My name is Justin Blizzard, and I'm here with Keith Krepko, and we're going to get right into it. We're going to discuss episode eight, uh, called Cairo, or as Dean pronounced it, Cairo. Cairo. Because I guess that's how the it's pronounced. That's how the the city in New York is pronounced, even though it's spelled the same way. Uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about, though, was I think the sort of the centerpiece of the episode is Patty and the GR, um, or the guilty remnant. And, uh, we have, I guess we have a lot of revelations about the guilty remnant in this episode. Um, although there's of course still some questions left to be answered. But the first thing I want to talk about is. Uh, during the course of the episode, Patty more or less gives the mission statement of the Guilty Remnant. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that and sort of the, the, the if it provides any clarity to what their mission is, to why they're doing what they're doing. So I, I wrote it down verbatim. This is what she says. So she's talking to Kevin about... Oh, she's t- I can't remember what they're talking about. I think maybe she's just explaining something and she just kind of goes into it. But she says... We strip ourselves of everything that distracts us f- from it, speaking about the departure. We strip away the colorful diversions that keep us from rem- remembering. We strip away attachment, fear, and love, and hatred and anger until we are erased, until we are a blank slate. We are living reminders of what you try to desp- what you try so desperately to forget. And we are ready, and we are waiting, because it's not going to be long now. So... She she more or less kind of sums up what everyone has assumed about the guilty remnant. She kind of like gives the guilty remnant mission statement without, but still without like clarifying anything. You know what I mean? Like we still don't know why they're doing what they're doing, right? Or did you did you like did you glean anything from that? Yeah, I gleaned something from it, but I do like um, Kevin's reaction to that. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much to be like, you know, that's bull right and he kind of dismisses it again and and i thought that that was good because there are elements of that which are which just sound like she's going back to her old cliches when she's like because it won't be long now because what won't be long now like are you all gonna drink kool-aid and kill yourselves or right what are you talking about is the second coming coming is that what you think think it is so i thought that part was still you know um, she was still kind of dodging around. She wasn't being totally upfront. Yeah. But that beginning pretty much kind of confirms what everybody thought. She's not really saying anything new, but it's good to hear her say it. Right. So you can finally be like, okay, this is what we do know. It is what we thought. But, you know, check off those boxes. Like, right. And it's still, I still have somewhat of an issue with it because she still seems to be making the point that their whole. Uh, goal is to make people remember or to not forget but something that we learned in last episode i think it was when kevin and nora pull up to nora nora's house nora says that they've been out there for weeks doing that or whatever and nora's like the one person in town (laughs) outside of the guilty remnant who is purposefully making herself remember every single day like she's starting fresh so it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense still don't you think they would target the people who didn't lose anybody because those people would tend to be the ones who right would forget like kevin right who and and even so like even in his admittance of like 
no, I never think about it. Like, that is not the impression I got <laughs> no. from watching this show so far. But. Were you, what did you think when Patty started talking? Did that catch you off guard? No. No? So because since she, she talked talking, before. No, but I mean, like, in that setting, like, you know, she talked before with a purpose. And now she's, you know, like, before you knew where she was heading mm-hmm. with all that talking, it didn't strike you as kind of surprising that she would talk so openly and freely? Not really. Like I said, I think probably just because she's done it before so openly and freely. You know what I mean? Like, she she did it when Meg showed up for the first time, which, I'm, you know, I'm sure can be explained as part of the, part of the process of recruiting someone. Someone has to talk. Right. But then, you know, she does it with Lori in the diner. It just didn't. It didn't really. Oh, it really registered for me. I really for for a second there. I really was thinking like Kevin Mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, she can't talk. Mm -hmm. I can do whatever I want to her. And Mm -hmm. then she can't. You know, she have to write everything out. Yeah. Um, But okay, Just wanted. Yeah. Um, But the, the one thing we do get from her mission statement, which I think is important. Like I said, like it, like I said, we still don't really know what to what end they're doing it, why they're really doing it. But the one thing she says that I think is very important is she says, "And we are ready, and we are waiting, because it's not going to be long now." And so that kind of raises the question: Is what are they ready for? What are they waiting for? And something that I mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts, is, and I'm still sticking to it, although I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence for it yet outside of just the general themes in the show, I still think that they're tied into this tribulation period. They're waiting for the second coming. I I feel like the guilt, I still feel like the guilty remnants purpose is biblical. I don't know what else they would be waiting for. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what else they would be. um, and, And this can sort of, bring us into the Gladys discussion. I don't know what else they would be martyring themselves for because that's more or less what it is with Gladys. You know, she admits to Kevin, she admits to Kevin that the guilty remnant were responsible for stoning Gladys, which not to toot my own horn, but you know, along with other people, I called it, you know what I mean? Like it seemed pretty obvious, but I don't know what that, what the, what's the purpose of, of killing one of your own members yeah, you deserve some fanfare, honestly. <laughs> uh, I, I was interested in what you would, um, in, in how you would take that scene and was pleasantly surprised that you kind of called it. Um, that is kind of reflected in the book, um, that the guilty remnant are kind of responsible for killing their own members. Oh, really? So mm-hmm. in the book, somebody gets stoned? Not, not in this way. But they, in the book, somebody gets killed, basically. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, and it's a little more, it, it speaks to a little more of maybe where they're going, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a little more personal, a little more intense in the in the book, I feel like. Um, but yeah, you, I, I was I was surprised to see how quickly you kind of saw through that ruse. Um, but... Uh, and she also then... Uh, that she also then starts talking about something else that we discussed um, is that it's, it's more or less where Lori was heading, right? Like that's what the whole diner scene was about. She was, I think feeling out Lori to see where her commitment lies and if she would be. And at the time it seemed to me, it seemed a little bit more, I think malicious 
than what it is. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like that diner scene was basically, are you up to snuff to do what Gladys just did? Right. Yeah. And the the one thing that gets me though, is again, going back to Patty's statement, uh, we strip away the colorful diversions that keep us from remembering. We strip away attachment, fear, love and hatred and anger until we are erased. But when I think about what they are doing, it is all about at least some of those things or all of those things, you know, and I don't understand how they think that they are evidencing people who are detached. Yeah. They seem very attached to what's going on. We, we kind of joked about last week, but even, you know, taking Matt's campaign so personally yeah. and just the way that, you know, Lori walks up and rips off the, uh, rips off the sign or the way that Lori blows her whistle in Matt's face. That's full of anger. Exactly. You know, I'm like, what do you guys, how do you think that you exemplify these traits? Because I'm really not seeing it. And then there's all the stuff behind closed doors. There's um, Lori sitting outside her house going back to retrieve the the lighter. So, you know, you know that some of them are cheating in that way. Mm -hmm. But then they're also cheating just in their everyday. And I, I think you can justify some of that. I think the cheating behind closed doors would be sort of expected you know um but but if if you're not uh if you're not fearsome or worrisome or afraid or angry at matt why are you graffitiing all of his posters and then protesting in the streets like that is a sign of anger or fear or whatever you know it's it's something that they can't ignore or 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 protesting at all i mean it seems like the true guilty remnant would be people who would stay on their own property smoking and just like sunbathing all day and just right. like we don't care about anything right. and let the loved ones come to them and be like, yeah. what are you doing? And then not react. Yeah. You know? Uh, and something else Patty mentions, she has a line and this also um, is a callback to the diner scene, I think, where she says, there was a time when this isn't verbatim, but she says something along the lines of there's a time when I told Lori everything and a time when Lori told me everything. And the diner scene was kind of hard to read at first because I felt like she was being malicious or sort of sarcastic towards Lori. And then I read on Reddit afterwards, someone had kind of uh, predicted or thought that the there could be a, sort of um, therapist dynamic going on because Mm -hmm. we don't know what Lori did before the um, departure, I guess. And so the idea is that either, I guess the potential idea is that Lori was a therapist and she specifically was Patty's therapist speaking to the time when Patty told Lori everything. And then once the departure happened, those roles were reversed and Lori sort of, sought therapy with patty Hmm. and so i think that's kind of that could be a revelation to their relationship and to their dynamic which and it also speaks to the kind of the mystery of who's neil you know i mean it doesn't give us any clarification on it but it's kind of like i think neil was somebody who was important in patty's life and that's probably what that scene meant right um something else that comes up is we get the impression that Kevin thinks that Lori joined the guilty remnant 
because of his affair, right? Right. He says, because I let her down. Or, right. And uh, then yeah. Patty references it. And so it's kind of, and, and, and that struck me as weird because, um, because of what we said before, where Lori's dictation to Meg is going on and on about how he was like the perfect husband and the perfect, the perfect father and the perfect husband. And it's kind right. of like, well, where does the, the affair, affair fall in, fall in, <laughs> fall into that? Maybe her idea of perfect husband is one kind of, what do they call it? Hall pass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one, just yeah. one little dalliance. So I think the idea is that around the time that she decided to join the guilty remnant, Lori, she also, I guess, found out about his affair. Again, we don't really know. Um, but it is addressed, which is nice, I think. It's mm-hmm. not just, you know. I think that was the good thing about this episode. You still you still have questions afterwards, but you feel like a, a lot was accomplished. Or at least like a lot happened. I did, at least. Yeah, and I, I really do like, and I didn't get to read much on people's reactions to this. But I like that some of the, the questions are answered just straightforwardly. Here's a quick yeah. answer and not tried to be spun out into a further mystery. You know, it's like Lori knows that Kevin had an affair. So if we never know anything more about that affair, I don't care from here on out. It, it seems whatever the details are of that other than maybe is that lady, was she departed? You know, yeah. is maybe the one lingering question. Right. But, you know, it seems like this um, episode answered a lot of those minor questions really quickly and just kind of kept the pace moving, which, which I really liked. Um, and so, yeah, I thought that was interesting just how quickly and easily they, they move through some of these character questions. Yeah. Um, and the last thing with, with Patty is before she kills herself, she starts reciting, um, part of a Yeats poem. Yeats. Yeats, a Yeats poem, and um, I don't, like, all of the stuff I tried to read about it online, I was getting a lot of mixed signals. Um, Brandon Ambrosino has a, a good but short sort of um, take on it in his write-up of the episode, but there seems to be a lot of conflicting sort of ideas where, you know, you, you've got, um, she mentioned something about horsemen, I can't remember, but it is sort of like, it's it's sort of like channeling apocalyptic imagery, which I guess Yeats is known for, mm-hmm. but not this specific poem that she was reciting. Um, so it seems like there's more of a sort of, a lot of loose thematic connections to the episode than there is a sort of specific, maybe foreshadowing of what's to come. You know what I mean? Like, right. like of course, there's a lot of um, horse slash deer imagery throughout the show, stuff right. like that. Um, hey, I'd rather have a poem than a National Geographic. Yeah, no, so. totally. Yeah, and that, and I wanted to bring it up. I, you know, I liked it. I thought it was great. I just don't really see the. I haven't seen a compelling argument for the connections outside of you know, like I said, there's sort of some loose thematic stuff in there. But it's again, it's not really it's nothing real concrete and it's nothing that we can really even speculate on. It's just this kind of like these are things that have kind of been referenced elsewhere in the series. We just don't really know what they are. Well, and and the other thing, too, that I think is interesting is, you know, if you take every word that Patty says as kind of, 
you know, important to the mission and the goal of the guilty remnant, which she is kind of the living embodiment of like, that's her life is the guilty remnant. Um, it's interesting that she would choose, you know, Yates and not the Bible to quote from, you know, like, I think that that's an interesting, um, detail and it's good to kind of question, well, why, what matters most to these people then? And to me, it's either the writers reaching for a cool kind of corollary to run alongside this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, or they are kind of saying that, you know, for these people, their kind of code is not so easily identifiable as like biblical. Like this is a Christian. Yeah cult or these seem to be people motivated by something a little more hard to define than yeah you know rapture and whatever um and and speaking of the you you mentioned the national geographic a little bit earlier something i just saw before we started recording is someone found in the episode there is a mural on the back of the cabin of two like deer or antelope i saw that yeah and it's actually a, uh, it's actually a, a painting from the there's the, the it's a it's a it's a painting from the National Geographic from last episode. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that image is a photograph, I think, or maybe it's a painting in the actual magazine itself. But that's just, just another connection. And that was on the back of the sh- of the um, of the wall of the wall, mm-hmm. right? In the it, cabin, yeah. Because I kept seeing it, and then that made me think too of like true detective you know when we when that show was going on and we talked about you know there's a scene where uh in one of the detective's houses mm-hmm. his daughter had drawn drawn like a symbol that was being right. used to reference like the killer or whatever and then come to find out at the end it was kind of like i got the sense that it was kind of like uh that was just art direction and you weren't really supposed to see that like that was more about mood (laughs) and no one was really supposed to fixate on the fact that you know his daughter drew the spiral do you think that it's one of those things where it's again like are they using the same kind of art design uh guy or set designer as it seems a little more purposeful i think yeah i I think so too but and i think damon lindelof is probably more aware of that than um, you know, Nick so, Pizzolatto, who that was his first right. go at it. So who do you think Drew stopped to draw those? Who knows? Well, this kind of, I mean, I, I read your notes. It kind of speaks to one of the theories later on that, that we'll mm-hmm. touch on. I'll just bring up here and we can talk uh, talk about later on. Yeah. But one of the theories he had written down was that Dean potentially is working for the GR. Right. You know, so, I mean, if he is help setting the stage, he could be somebody who drew that or... The second theory is that he is one of those people who've come to help that, you know, Kevin Sr. He's the talked guardian about. angel that Kevin Sr. And he's the guardian, guardian angel. Then he, he would maybe, to himself as. he would maybe, you know, draw that if the right. you know magazine matters so much. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I wanted to talk about with Patty, and I had this in our observations, but I'll just go ahead and mention it, is she kills herself at the end of the episode, right? And... Uh, it just is like, like, like Kevin is already in enough hot water being in this cabin. Like, 
um, with Patty, who is now dead. Like, why would Kevin, the chief of police, who in an earlier episode is criticizing his officers for sloppy um, crime scene technique, rush over and grab a woman who just killed herself <laughs> and not just grab her to catch her from falling, then put his hand around the, the suicide device and pull it out of her. And it just is like, it just is, it was so, it just felt so like, you know, it just felt like such like a, like a cheap way to sort of up the ante of the scene yeah. when really it was like, she could have fallen and crumpled to the floor and bled out, and he would still be in as much hot water than if he, you know what I mean? Like, people would still see that and think he killed her. Like, you don't need her to run over and put his hands all over it and get covered in blood. It just felt like so stupid. Right. You know what I mean? It just is like, that I wanted really to turn bothered into me. like a silent film clip of him, like, slipping on the blood and like a piano comes in you just keep falling over yeah. it turns into like yakety sacks <laughs> um yeah that really bothered me but uh the the last thing about the guilty remnant is we also get to see and this is a this is a this isn't as much this isn't really a prediction because i feel like it's so obvious but at the same time they haven't totally spelled it out um, but we get to see at the, towards the end of the episode, what the guilty remnant sort of plan is with the photographs that they've stolen. And now with this mysterious sort of people movers in the U-Haul truck that show up when they take a bunch of money, we're getting the idea that they're going, they've got a huge, maybe like art installation, something planned for Memorial day where they're going to dress up loved ones figures of all the departed from Mapleton in clothes that they owned. And either like, maybe it's like I said, maybe it's going to be a huge art installation. Maybe they're going to like mm -hmm. try and like reposition them in the people's houses themselves. You know what I mean? I don't know what they're going to do, but you know, they're going to do something with yeah. it. I'm just glad they have a better project than they can take time out from Matt battling Matt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To focus on um, the bigger fish. Yeah. But what what I was sort of curious about that is, is like, what is the Guilty Remnant's role in the book? Like, are they this antagonistic in the book? Are they like plotting these huge under like undertakings to just torment the town? No. And and again, I'll I'll kind of, you know, say that it's every week that goes by is a week farther away than when I read the book. So, yeah, um, <clears throat> I. I don't remember it as clearly, but from my recollection, the guilty remnant were, they did follow people. They did smoke. They would just follow people wherever they went. But that was their main kind of thrust. The, the only kind of notch up was this, they're offing themselves kind of, which I think better rep represents and reflects a group that would actually believe what the guilty remnant, you know, proclaim that they believe in. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't waste their time on smaller little, you know, activities like, and they wouldn't be drawn out by a, an ad campaign by, by the local preacher. You so know? what do you think they're going for by, by, what do you think they're going for by martyring themselves? Mm -hmm. And what do you think they're going for by 
with the sort of loved ones demonstration? I, I think that, you know, in, in the show, they obviously are more antagonistic. So part of that makes me think on the show side of it, you need something for someone to do, mm-hmm. you know, like in a book, the guilty remnant can disappear for 20 pages. You can touch back in right. on them and, and go into the inner monologue of Lori for a little bit and then go back out and nothing really has to happen in a TV show. If the guilty remnant were as passive as they are in the book. I think people would be really bored by them. So I think part of it is giving them something to do. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say the big art installation is in terms of what they're trying or what that's going to say about them. I don't know if it's going to say anything about them more than another chance for them to be provocative towards the people mm-hmm. in their town. You know, mm-hmm. here's a great way for us to just stick our hands in the wound mm-hmm. of everybody who, but again, who lost somebody like, right. are they, and I guess this is the, the one question I have is, are they only trying to make the people remember who lost somebody mm-hmm. or are they trying to make everybody remember Mm -hmm. you know um because it seems like if you keep digging your your hand into the wound of the people who lost somebody you're just reopening old wounds you're not creating new ones it seems like what you'd want to do is to the best of your ability create new ones and people who didn't lose anybody right you know to help help them remember quote unquote what happened so I don't know. I don't know why they're targeting because you, you get the sense, right? They they only broke into houses of people who lost somebody. Right. right? And took photographs. And, right? and took photographs. So they're only going to dress these, you know, dolls up based on people who were actually departed. Right. So they're only going after the people who lost somebody. Right. I, I, so, again, it goes back to questioning their whole kind of, you know, purpose yeah and i'll also say that seems a little pompous for like like i'm sure not everyone in the guilty remnant lost somebody like meg didn't right like that seems a little arrogant to be like hey i didn't lose somebody but you did and you need to remember it because i remember it yeah no that's totally it lori right right lori leaves she she to me seems like what they should be trying to do which is creating new wounds Mm -hmm. right It, it you know kind of exploding families that shouldn't be, you know, kind of exploded by this. Mm-hmm. For the people who lost somebody, they're probably crumbling anyway, you know? Yeah. And their membership is not exclusive to people who lost somebody. Right. So why why are they specifically targeting these people? And who are they hoping to get from the people who didn't lose anybody? Just a-holes who are like, hey, I saw what you guys did to those people who lost somebody. Yeah. I really want to be a part of this. Yeah. You know, I'm tired of egging houses. It's just not giving me the rush anymore <laughs> I'm tired of stealing kids bikes yeah, it gets really boring when you're just standing outside somebody's home <laughs> hoping they like get upset at you right oh so i'm ready to do this next uh i'm ready to buy in yeah um and speaking of who they're targeting uh a, a lot of patty's sort of well her last lines are all about kevin kind of revealing his true self or um, or some or or uh, or Kevin hiding like maybe like hiding his identity. There's a lot of ramblings in her last few lines of like basically proclaiming that Kevin is not who he says he is or who he thinks he is 
or who he's trying to convince other people he is. That's what Kevin Sr. is kind of saying, too. Right. And so I wasn't sure if, like, that is, like, sort of, like, garden variety, like, guilty remnant recruiting tactics, or if it's, like, or if Kevin is sort of a more important central figure for all of the mysterious stuff that's going on. And if he is, like, could they not pick more of, like, a like a homer you know what i mean like he's kind of a <laughs> he's just kind of like a he's just kind of like a i don't know he just seems so like like i've said he seems more or less like he's just waiting for things to happen he doesn't seem to be initiating a lot oh he is totally passive in this yeah. role right i mean down to his i'm sleeping and i'm waking up and i don't know what i've been doing right. to like he didn't cut that dog loose. I mean, he didn't even know what he was trying to do with it right. until he had no Dean. Idea why the dog was there? Yeah. Until Dean was like, "Remember our bet? You said you're going to domesticate it." Yeah. By the way, I love how Dean is like, "I'm getting my dollar." Yeah. You know, but uh, you know, in, so I'm like, here's a guy who has this dog for potentially. I mean, how long since last episode passed? I don't think it was that long. But <clears throat> it yeah, wasn't that long. At least but it was a, a few week, nights, maybe, right? Yeah, yeah, at least a week, a few days. So here's a guy, a few days, he has this dog who's going bananas out, right. outside. And he doesn't even think to like, I'm going to try and figure this out. He's just like, oh, I guess I got this dog now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. which, by the way, talk about domesticating this dog. He let Jill get pretty close and just cut him loose with a yeah. knife. I mean, he didn't seem like that crazy of a dog. Yeah, and they sort of they sort of reference that in the beginning of the episode. I can't remember what happens, but but something or or Nora he says something to Nora, and he says something like he's actually getting better or something like that, if you can believe it or something like that. But they do reference it a little bit. Well, yeah, yeah. But, I thought he was just talking about his barking. Yeah, his yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So, anyways, yeah, Ke- Kevin is kind of has become i mean he's always been a central figure but now there seems to be a deeper meaning to it and and so the biggest revelation is that he is going into some sort of sleep state that allows him to commit these potentially horrific acts and not be conscious of it and then he you know so that's the revelation in this episode he goes to sleep he wakes up in the woods um, with Dean and they find Patty tied up, but it kind of raises more questions about Dean. And this was something I was going to save for later in the show, but it sort of became increasingly more prominent is the idea of like, like, and I know we've addressed this before and it's, we seem to have had a clear answer, but like, is Dean real? Like, and I think maybe the more appropriate question is, what is Dean? Like, we know that other people have seen him. Yeah. And there other people have interacted with him. And I even went so far as to re-watch the scene with the city council when Kevin is giving his curfew speech. Because I was kind of thinking maybe it was like a sixth sense type thing where it's like, you go back and see it and you realize that like Kevin is actually kind of not talking to anybody and people are getting weirded out by it. But no, right. like Dean is speaking and the people around him are like looking at Dean and reacting to what Dean is saying. So we know he's real, right? Or we know other people can see him. Yeah. But the question is kind of like, what is he? Yeah. See, I, I think that's the right question is what is he? Because 
you know, being real still doesn't mean that necessarily you're, you know, human in the same way that everybody around you is, right? He refers to himself as the guardian angel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think my question is, what is he? I mean, he could be somebody who just appears in this town and he says like, you know, when uh, Kevin's like, you're not even from here. He's yeah. Like, yes, I am. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't <laughs> clarify that anymore. And yeah. you don't see people like nodding vigorously right. being like, "That's he's my neighbor. Like right. nobody takes ownership of Dean um, or stands up for him. So he could be uh, an out of towner. And, and Patty addresses that in this episode, too, by right. saying you've got no file, no driver's license, no address, no whatever. So. Right. So, I mean, he's here with a with a different purpose. I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I like your, your theory on, on who you think Dean might be, which is the AT. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But throughout the, at one point in the episode, when Patty, after Patty is talking about not being able to find any information on him, she calls him a ghost. He refers to himself as a guardian angel, which is very reminiscent of the language that Kevin senior used. At right. the end of episode two, maybe where he tells Kevin that there somebody is on their way to help or something along those lines, um, but you get a very, or at least I did, I got a very um, strong kind of dynamic of like, you remember in like the in the like Looney Tunes and stuff like that, where you've got like a character who's trying to make a decision. And on one side, like an angel pops angel, up and on yeah. the other side, a demon or a devil pops up. I was getting that kind of vibe from the, from Kevin's um, scenes in the cabin, except like he basically had like two devils, right? Like right. They, Patty and Patty Dean. and Dean are both like trying to convince Kevin to kill Patty, right? Like Patty's <laughs> trying to convince Kevin to kill her and Dean basically wants the same thing. And so it, it, it's kind of strange to think of him as a guardian angel. You know what I mean? Because like he's helping Kevin do all of these like pretty heinous things. Um, so again, I mean, we just don't know. Right. Uh, I eventually it'll get solved. But then there's another moment where after he, um, after Kev, so Kevin walks out, finds his shirts which we'll talk about he comes back and dean is waiting for him outside and dean tries to keep him from going inside and he says something like it's all been taken care of don't worry blah blah blah. kevin goes inside sees that dean has wrapped a plastic bag over uh patty's head and she's suffocating when he tries to stop her or when he tries to rip the bag open they start wrestling did you also feel like from Patty's perspective, and this is a horrible thought to even think, but I was like, initially I thought that is a woman who wants to live. Yeah, no, absolutely. Watching her. It looked horrific. It it looked horrific. And I don't want to try and gauge a character. Like what is a convincing suffocating face? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that's not, but to me it did feel like, Either she was having a Gladys moment yeah, where it's like, I don't want this or like maybe I don't want it this way, mm-hmm. um, which obviously is not true because later on she, she kills herself in a pretty horrific way. Right. But I just felt like saying like, 
why is she fighting so hard? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think it, I think it you, it could be viewed as the same way, but I think it could also just be looked at as sort of your body's natural reaction to exactly to being suffocated. You know I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was it was it was terrible. Um, but after Kevin rips the bag off of her head, Dean walks away, and my first viewing of it, I didn't think anything of it. I thought he was just talking to Patty. Um, because as he's walking away, Patty's like gasping for air. It kind of seems like she's trying to say something, but she's really just just sucking air back into her lungs. And Dean says something like, I think he says, you know, oh, shut, shut the up. F up. I tried. Yeah. And to me, it was just to me, it was just Patty wanted to die. Dean wanted to kill her. And that's all it was. It was just Dean saying to Patty, I tried. Um but when I got on Reddit, a lot of people were then thinking that Dean was like Kevin Sr. talking to voices that were, I guess, telling him to do something. And so there's been kind of a rampant theory going around of because I think Holy Wayne is also hearing voices, although I don't remember that in any of the episodes. A lot of people have mentioned it. Mm. So there's kind of this theory of like where are the voice is coming from. Right. You know, there's a million theories out there ranging from, you know, some they're spiritual to their um <laughs> their um Matt's wife <laughs> telling these people <laughs> to do it. I don't know. But there's a lot of ideas out there. Um but like I said, I mean, is that how you read it? Like he was oh, just speaking to Patty? From, no. Or from, even then it was just like him being frustrated or whatever? No, from, from the first time I thought he's hearing voices. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, See, no. I just took it as him speaking to Patty. I, I, I had literally the exact opposite um, experience that you did where in the as a secondary, I was like, oh, maybe he was talking to Patty. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe he was just being kind of rude to a lady who's uh, sucking air and yeah, I mean like, oh, yeah. shut up. But no, I took it as um, he's hearing voices. So do you think they're the same voices that Kevin Sr. is hearing? Yes. Hmm. Yep. That that was my initial take where immediately afterwards I was like, Dean is hearing the same voices as Kevin Sr. So. Do you have any idea what those voices might be? Um, You know, again, I think I'm going to go to um, to my go-to verse and acts yeah where you know it's it's i think that again we've talked about our desire for the show to be more secular in mm-hmm. its focus which i agree and so the secular take on it would be you know in the end so well first let me say the religious idea is you know the verse basically says god himself says in the last days you know, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will prophesy and have visions, and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So that's the religious I- identity. If you were to correlate that to a secular one, then what you'd be saying is in the end times or, or in a uh, an instance of great calamity that your old men and your young men will go crazy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like their response to this will be a, a kind of this heightened... Re- reaction mm-hmm. to it and so it may turn into a schizophrenic response you know where mm-hmm. people don't know what to do with it so they start 
having these mass delusions or whatever. So, I mean, I would, I would like on the secular side of it for this to just be a kind of a, a manic representation of, you know, these people's psychosis, mm -hmm. you know, or on the spiritual side of it, which I think the show is more going towards. Right. Cause I don't think that that holds up when you apply it to, you know, two people who don't have interaction with one another, right. Who are saying the same things with, this show is done again and again and again, mm -hmm. tying characters together who don't necessarily uh, belong. I, I would say that this is, you know, you, you have to have then two warring factions, right? God and Satan are the two or the beast, you know, are the two main players in the end times. And you have, you know, this antichrist who is not against Christ, but it is a, a false version of Christ. So mm -hmm. somebody who's going to look a lot like him. And I think that you're, you're having these two sides speaking to these people, but some are getting mixed up, right? Like mm -hmm. Holy Wayne probably doesn't think that he's part of the negative plan as far as we know, but just in that title, the, uh, BC and the baby um, Jesus and the Antichrist. yeah yeah the BJ yeah. and the AC um, it kind of ties Holy Wayne to the Antichrist side of it yeah so I mean I think that um, if I had to guess Kevin Senior and Dean are going to end up being part of the light side of it mm -hmm. right the the positive side of it and Holy Wayne even though Dean is like. I mean, I don't think sh I don't think the shooting the f of the feral dogs is bad, really. Mm -hmm. But like, he is pulling. I mean, he did try and murder a woman. Yeah, that doesn't really seem like the light side to me. Yeah, but I mean, I guess it, it all. It, it you know, you have this sense, just like Patty does, of everybody playing a role, yeah. right? Like, especially in the end times, nobody can stand up and say, you know, the Antichrist can't stand up and say. I don't want to be the antichrist anymore. Like yeah. he has no free will in that decision. The end times are playing out on this kind of preordained seven year plan. Right. Yeah. So I think all these people have an idea of people being pawns in this and you lose pawns for the sake of the larger picture. So I think in Dean's mind is, and he even kind of says again and again, like this was your decision. Like, this is your plan. He's like, you came to me and you said, this is what we're doing. He's like, you went and got Patty mm -hmm. and you, you beat her up and you kidnapped her. Yeah. So you, you maybe have the sense too, that Dean is facilitating. He thinks that Kevin Jr. is somebody worth following in these end times. And, uh, maybe Kevin Jr. is, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and he realizes now that Kevin Jr. just isn't ready to take those hard steps they needs to which involve you know kind of murdering people but maybe who are serving bigger purpose the last thing they'll say and then i'll shut up um especially if we're just talking about the religious side of it which again i think we're talking more about that this episode because we both have come to an agreement based on the last episode two you know two weeks ago that this show is kind of firmly planting itself in the supernatural yeah. side mm -hmm. of it so I just want to say really quickly, 
I mean, what would Christianity be without the central death of Christ? You know what I mean? And so you have these ideas, right, of Pontius Pilate, who tried to wash his hands of the death of Jesus Christ, you know? Mm. But he he couldn't. He had to. Like, can you imagine if he pardoned Jesus? The central kind of image and and <laughs> the whole point of Christianity yeah. wouldn't have happened. Right. So I think death plays a very real role and maybe not always in a negative connotation, um, especially when you're talking about these major moments, uh, the, the second coming being one of them. But, you know, I mean, Jesus had to die and people had to be part of it, a, a part of him dying. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. Um, and, and just to wrap up our talk about Dean, I'm still, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not totally, I don't, I don't, I'm not firm on this. I don't really know what to think of Dean, but I, I like the idea of him being an, um, ATFEC officer or whatever they're called. I like the idea that he's sort of there undercover, kind of just like getting a feel for the town and just kind of like mixing it up as he sees fit. You know what I mean? I, I think that fits in the sense of, you know, that's why you could say, oh, yeah, I do live here. Maybe he does now, right? Yeah. He didn't live there live there before. And he said he just came to town. So either he's, I, I like your theory, or he is going to have a much more convoluted kind of um, reveal of being yeah. some sort of a angel or sent from. Yeah, and yeah, with that being said, if he is hearing voices, I think that kind of all of that goes out the window. Well, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. It's. It's, I mean, look, don't you think he reacted the same way Kevin Sr. did? I mean, Kevin Sr., you know, uses the F word, too, and feels like... Well, like, I mean, like, that's not unique to anybody in this yeah. show. <laughs> I just I just thought that Kevin Sr.'s, um, you know, the voices are pushing, obviously. Yeah. He's frustrated with them, and he basically says the same, like, shut up, I, I tried, yeah. you know? And, and it's true. Dean is saying pretty much the same almost verbatim i definitely picked up on it more the second time i watched it of course because i had read about it but it i still i'm still just sort of gonna go with my gut and just because it just when i first watched it just felt like he was just responding to patty and i mean and even when you rewatch it like you can tell she's trying to say something or she's struggling to speak or breathe it just felt like a response to that more or less um but we'll move on to the last sort of uh figurehead of the episode and that's jill she gets a lot of time we kind of i don't know if we learn a lot about her but there's a there is a big focus and she does have some big moments in the episode yeah amy's out of the house now right amy's out of the house um but the sort of i think the the catalyst of all of it of of her arc more or less towards the end of the episode at least is when she finds um you know, she gets in an argument more kind of with Nora at dinner in the beginning of the episode about whether or not she has a gun. It becomes this symbol to to Jill of, I guess, whether or not Nora's okay, which is the language that Jill uses throughout all of the episode of people being okay or not okay. Yeah. And uh, I think the catalyst for her arc towards the end of the episode is her breaking her and the twins breaking into Nora's house. She finds the, her gun in, uh, 
the trouble box underneath her son's bed. Um, so what do you think that signified? It was obviously a big moment for Jill because she found it and sort of broke down and started crying. Yeah, and doesn't Amy have a moment where she's talking like the twins or something? She kind of explains to them. Yeah, and, and they're they're and like, the twins explain it too in their own yeah. kind of boneheaded way, right? And they're like, "Oh, good," and she's like, "Look, if she can't be okay, then nobody can right. be okay," you right. know, and uh, and that's kind of what Jill is putting is reading into this, right? So, so I guess that's the question: is Nora is Nora hiding the or storing the gun underneath her son's bed in a trouble box, is that a sign of her being okay, or is that a sign of her not being okay? Yeah, and I guess Jill, what what Jill was saying is, if she held on to the gun at all, Mm -hmm. then she's not okay. Right. Then she is only temporarily kind of pushing it aside, but at any point that can come back into play. Yeah. So for Jill's mind, it's either all gone or it's not. And to me, it, it kind of reveals. And look, Jill is a teenager, right? Right. And and that could be how a teenager could could think. Like I, I definitely thought like that in my lifetime and run up against teenagers who have a very black and white idealized version of the world. But stuff like that, I find frustrating, and I think I'm supposed to as a watcher of just saying like, you know, it, it doesn't matter as much as your putting into this you know what i mean to find the you don't know like so she put the gun in the trouble box that's progress so why are you going to make a huge declaration on your own life based on this other person's like right it's, you know what i mean it's it's a good image but um but it, it's a frustrating one to think that that is maybe a catalyst to send Jill where she ends up at the end of the episode. Yeah. You know? And so I think the idea is that Jill is so upset when she finds the gun because that means that Nora actually is moving on. And Oh no, no. I, I think I think that, that Nora Nora Nora's good mood attitude, wherever uh-huh. she's putting on, is just it's a sham. It's going to end at some point. And that gun is going to come back into her purse, maybe, or back into her life. Mm-hmm. Like, I read it as Jill Jill was saying, you know, you have a gun on you right now. So this whole, like, dinner scene, mm-hmm. this is stupid because you're terrified mm-hmm. and you're not over what happened. And we can't be doing this mm-hmm. while, you know, you're you're pretending, you know? And so when she finds the gun, that confirms... That it's her that, beliefs for Jill, right? That, 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 that she's not that, okay. Yeah, that it's just it's just pretend. Like the gun may not be in the in the bag anymore, you know, but it's not gone. Like if it was gone, then I think Jill would have said, "All right, I'm going to give Nora a chance to kind of like be part of this family, or you know that maybe this could work." Mm-hmm. But she's realizing it's not going to work because this lady still has her gun, you know. And that gun is going to come back into play and all the problems that Nora have mm-hmm. has are going to come back. It's not that she's she's been able to fully move move on. Mm-hmm. And no one will ever be able to fully move on. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's it's Jill's confirmation that her life 
will never get back to what it was, that the world will never get back to what it was. She's using that to extrapolate to the whole world mm-hmm. that everything's screwed now and no one will be okay again. See, I read it as the opposite. I, really? I, I saw it as, because when they're, when her and Amy are having that confrontation, Amy's whole point, and it has been for a lot of the season, um, is that Jill doesn't want people to be okay. And so Amy says, you know, like the people around you would could start moving on if you would let them or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, she, she's like, your dad could be happier or something like right. that if you if you let him. Right. And so Amy is more or less saying like is is accusing Jill of not wanting people to move on. And the whole dinner scene is she's she's uh, she's. Uh, you know, expecting the gun to be in Nora's purse because she's expecting Nora to not be okay. So when it's not in there, you know, she's embarrassed. I don't think she's happy to see that it's not in there. She's suspicious, of course, but I think she wants the gun to be in there because she doesn't think Nora should be moving on or, or could move on. And so when she finds it in Nora's house, it's and 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 I see it in Nora's house. Like you have to think about where it's in a it's in a board game box underneath her son's bed or one or her son's bed. Mm-hmm. And you have to think about like in that she doesn't Nora does not touch anything in her or in her kids' rooms. Like nothing goes into the room, nothing comes out of the room. Everything was left as it was when they were departed. So to me, that's sort of a sign of she's maybe she's not fully moved on i mean the gun is still there but she's at least trying she's put it in a place where she doesn't touch anything she doesn't go in there and mess with things you know what i'm saying yeah yeah i think we're i think we're saying the same thing with with a slightly different take because you know and and jill's response is to break down crying when she when she finds the gun Mm -hmm. right so i think she finds the gun she realizes Nora's moving on no, no, yes. no. See, no. I think she realizes Nora is moving on and she's upset because she doesn't no. think people should be moving on. Just like when with the baby, when the baby Jesus gets stolen, right? It's like she wants people to to be upset about it. She wants her dad to be like invested in it, but he's not. No. That's but, how I read it. But I mean, but I mean she's also the one who will return the baby Jesus, you know. She she's always she's the one who never pulls through with her darkness. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? I think that this was the final straw for her though. You know, like I would agree with you if she was doing those things and carrying them out fully, but she's always been somebody on both sides of the fence. She's always been somebody who's like, I hate you, dad. Mm -hmm. I love you, dad. You Mm -hmm. know, I'd be like, I'm going to take the baby Jesus and then I'm going to give the baby Jesus back, Mm -hmm. you know, or I'm going to, threatened to light it on fire and I'm not going to follow through with it. Mm -hmm. You know? So, I mean, I would agree with you if she had been doing those things and seeing them all the way through, but she has shown up to this point, this glimmer of hope. Right. And I think this was her last glimmer was Nora, Nora who lost her whole family. Mm -hmm. Like if Nora could move on, then maybe there's a chance Mm -hmm. that Everybody else could move on. Everything could be okay, you know? Yeah. But the fact that Nora cannot move on, that Nora, as symbolized by the gun, can't just get rid of it, that she needs to bury it in her son's room, which, again, is untouched. To me, it's a metaphor of Nora has buried that fear that 
you know, about the, about the departure that led her to need this gun. She's buried it deep, deep downside, like, but still linked to the departure. It's Mm -hmm. it's in her son's room now. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's like, all that stuff is going to come back up. Like Wayne's hug is going to, you know, wear off and Nora is going to freak out again. You know, she, she's going to need the gun again. So I took it as that as Jill breaking down, crying, realizing Nora can, can never fully move on. She will never be able to fully rid herself of that gun, mm-hmm. you know, and all the metaphor that the gun represents. Yeah. We have the same take on it, but the, at the we end, different conclusions. at the end, we wildly diverge. Yeah. All right. Well, fair enough. Um, and speaking of Amy, and this is a little bit of a more insignificant point, but it is one that has been an issue with every single episode almost is we get kind of an answer to, we get a sarcastic answer to the Amy and Kevin question, right? Which I think indicates that nothing happened between the two, which I think was sort of the feeling all along, um, but what was inter- what's interesting to me about it is um, the the question of the book. So I mean, like you said before, the Amy and the the Amy and Kevin dynamic is addressed. You said fairly early on in the book, right? Or mm-hmm. at least definitively, mm-hmm. right? And and they they don't address it in the show, and they still haven't definitively. Um, so they're very purposefully sort of teasing that. For what reason we don't really know. But I think the the sort of interest, what interests me about it is um, in the show, Amy is always around for Kevin's blackouts. And so my questions are kind of like, does Kevin have the blackouts in the book? If he does, is Amy involved in them or around when they happen? Like, what is her role during that in the book? Or what is her role in the book in general? Is she yeah. just kind of like a the girl that's at the house yeah she's the girl at the house and she she plays a little bit of a role in the in the book though they do pretty much definitively definitively deal with kevin's like i would never sleep with this girl right it's crazy right that i would ever so it's strange that they're like teasing in the show like they have to be teasing that purposefully in the show for some reason well the, the thing that i wonder is and and so they've kind of built again this show is following the story arc loosely. Right. Same beats are being hit. They're being arrived at differently. But it makes me wonder, does Amy's character, do they have a larger kind of purpose and and um, kind of arc for her character? Like, do you think, and this is maybe a, a really out there theory, but do you think, is there any chance that Amy could be one of the people sent to help um, Kevin Kevin, or could she be part of Kevin's blackouts? Like helping him get to the blackout like phase Dean is like Dean. I don't know. I mean, that, I, that, I think, I think that plays into a little bit of um, we're going to talk about other like sort of outsider theories in a little bit. I think that could play into it a little bit, but it just seems like one puzzle piece too many to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, would you feel satisfied if Amy kind of either disappeared or took a back seat from yes. here on out? Yeah. Yep. So you feel like she, she served her purpose a little bit. Yeah. So after uh, Jill finds the gun, 
she I think the next thing that happens with Jill is she goes back to the to her house. Right. And that's when she cuts the dog loose, Mm -hmm. um, which is mirrored in Kevin cutting Patty loose which speaks to kind of the running theory that the feral dogs represent the, the guilty remnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, the dog, there's sort of the question of, you know, Dean, Dean uh, reveals that they, the reason the dog is at the house is because Kevin is betting him that he can re-domesticate the feral dogs basically, or um, re-civilize them. I can't remember how he, how he puts it, but re-domesticate them and, there's the line in the opening where Kevin says, you know, he's actually gotten a little better. And then you see when um, Jill comes out to cut him loose, that the dog is not immediately aggressive, right? He doesn't start barking immediately. I mean, he does start barking, but there is a bit of a calm beforehand. And then she's able to just cut him loose and he runs off or she has to actually tell him to run off. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you... It, I mean, the the symbolism seems pretty strong, right? Do you think it? Do you think that works? Do you think that fits? That this idea of, I think um, someone reclarified the theory as uh, hearkening back to the first episode as Kevin being the deer that the feral dogs basically pull apart and kill, mm-hmm. um, and Dean is there trying to kind of kill the dogs which is i mean it's a pretty one-for-one comparison if you think about dean's trying to kill patty who is a she's the guilty remnant she's representing the feral dogs right who are kind of trying to consume kevin yeah i like to imagine that there's one writer who loves to um listen to podcasts on the show (laughs) He, he writes for the leftovers yeah and he listened to you say that and he's right now going, you're not supposed to see that. <laughs> Don't read too deeply into it. Like where, where that may be backdrop, but you know, because I think it's, uh, I think it's there, right. you know? So is the idea that the guilty remnant are going to consume Kevin or maybe Mapleton unless either some an outside force kills them or Kevin is Kevin responsible for trying to re-domesticate the guilty remnant. You know, basically? If, if, if I really want to go out there on a theory, like way, way out there, it would probably end up looking something like Kevin is plays some role in whatever's going to happen as these end times, quote unquote play mm-hmm. out. And that his soul is basically in the middle of a battle and mm. the GR representative of one side of it and Dean and whoever Dean represents is representative of the other side of it. And, um, if, you know, if my crazy theory, just to see it through, it would say, you know, the GR are not on the side that you would want to be on, you know, right. maybe. Um, and, uh, and, and they would, if they got to Kevin, end up kind of destroying him Mm -hmm. whereas um dean and and kevin senior maybe have different plans for him Mm -hmm. you know or or trying to preserve him for something future yeah uh so jill's 
Jill's arc in the show ends with her showing up <laughs> at the guilty remnant house that Lori has just more or less taken control of whether she knows it or not, right? She's kind of sitting in Patty's chair, feeling it out. We know that Patty's dead or about to die. So Lori's going to be filling in that role, right? She's the new Patty, basically. And and this is a bit of a... This is the one time I actually watched the preview for the next episode because my wife wanted to watch it. Um... So this is a bit of a spoiler for that preview if you don't watch the previews. But in the uh, there's been some question of whether or not Jill actually joins the Guilty Remnant. And I know there's some book stuff in there. But in the preview for the next episode, there's a scene of her dressed all in white. So I just kind of assumed she joined the Guilty Remnant. I mean, it seems pretty like... You know, she's worn nothing but all black for the entire season. And so to then see her in a scene with her mother wearing all white, not speaking, you're kind of assuming she has joined the guilty remnant. And I think that so is that the that is that the impression you got? Like now I know it's different in the book, right? Yeah. Yeah, in the book it's way different. Okay. So I I was thinking, you know, until you said about the about the next week or mm-hmm. on I was just imagining next week opening with uh, Joe being like, Mom, I need to talk to you. Come outside. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So and and that may not happen. You know, like I said, I'm assuming she joins. And I and that I think that plays into my earlier theory with the gun is the guilty remnant is obviously an organization that feels that people have are not properly remembering the departure right. and they feel like they shouldn't be moving on from it. Right. And so that's why I feel like Jill is such a, would join the guilty remnant because when I see her finding Nora's gun, I see her being so upset because she's seeing that Nora is moving on or at least taking see, steps to move on. See, I, I see it as she sees that Nora at one point in the future will not be all right, that the whole world is off kilter it'll never be put right and she's realizing now with finality that but that's the thing it can never go back if she realizes that the world is not moving on and it cannot go back why would she join a group that is trying to convince people to not move on because 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 now jill's finally been convinced like she's finally convinced that she'll never get her old life back it can never happen it's a pipe dream so now why not join the guilty remnant, you know, who are like, never forget the whole world is screwed. You're all, you know, screwed. Yeah. And and I feel like um, with with Jill, I feel like if the guilty remnant believe in their principles, they wouldn't allow Jill to join. Like they would send Jill to another guilty remnant you know, in another city yeah. because the whole thing is that you don't no have family. Fa- yeah, right. attachment. So why would you allow a mother and a daughter to be part of the same guilty remnant troop? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can see that, but like I said, that I think, I think because we see it so differently, that's why we, but um, that, that kind of wraps up Jill's, 
that wraps up the episode, wraps up Jill's sort of, you know, that's what we're left with for the next episode. And um, so let's talk about like your, what what was your just overall feelings on the episode, on the episode as a whole? Yeah. My, my overall feeling is, you know, I think we both agree that the best two episodes of the season so far are the uh, Matt and Nora centric Mm -hmm. episodes. Um, Beyond that, I would put this one as probably the best outside of a single character um, you know, if they could just, you know, kind of stick to this, I'm not even sure what they fully did. It's a mixture of straight telling mm-hmm. kind of straight answers with some stuff, yeah. um, teasing the mysteries that are already there in an interesting way. Um, I'd be happy you know, yeah, with, it, with the series. It's kind of hard to pinpoint, but it definitely feels a lot different than the other episodes where yeah. you're just getting a lot, and, but it doesn't feel like anything is happening. Yeah. I felt like a lot was happening and I was getting a lot while also still left intrigued of what's going to happen right. next. Right. Um, yeah, I, I liked it a lot too. And um, something that I noticed, I don't know if the show is trying to do this purposefully. There's not a lot of exploration of it I feel like um, that's very obvious but something that I noticed is it seems to be or at least there seems to be sort of two parallels of grief in the show where you have people who um, lost someone in the departure like Nora and their family and then you have someone you have people like Meg who we find out her mom died the day before the departure and so her um, I think uh, Matt calls it. Matt refers to it as her hijack, her grief being hijacked. Right. So she wasn't allowed sort of the sympathy that we would allot somebody who just lost a parent because the very next day, 140 million people disappeared. Um, and there was somebody else, Meg, and um, oh, just the Garveys whose family has kind of fallen apart. And there seems to be, I don't know if they're trying to explore this idea of like, which is worse, maybe, is a bit of a crude way to put it. But yeah, you have this idea of like, Nora has lost her family. She has no idea where they went or what happened to them. And then you have someone like Meg, whose mom died. Um, it's kind of like they're they're both grieving, but they're both almost like completely different grieving processes you know yeah, what i mean yeah and absolutely. it's like you know meg has lost someone that she knows is never coming back it just seems it just seems like something they could explore maybe they are exploring like i said it, it just was something that struck me after this episode yeah i and i wonder too you know i i, I wish because you do get little interactions like nora spraying the guilty remnant with a hose right nora offering them cookies or whatever. remember she's walking to her car or whatever she's like y'all wanna whatever rice like, crispy oh, treat yeah, yeah rice crispy yeah. treat i just want to be like couldn't they just have a line in there where nora does kind of say exactly what you said like oh did you guys lose somebody in the right the, oh you didn't oh i did yeah you want me to remember yeah you know like i just wish that you could have that interaction maybe they they have had that before you know, and now she's talking about Rice Krispie treats because she's already said it to him. Yeah. But I would like to see that, you know, because I, I feel like there, there's something there. There's something for the show to really pursue in, in greater kind of um, earnestness. Yeah. 
Okay, well, something I wanted to talk about, something new that I wanted to talk about, I think it's appropriate with the last few episodes and with everything kind of culminating, is there are a lot more um, theories on what is going on, what is happening in the town, and I wanted to run some of them by you and sort of uh, see if we could get some thoughts on them. All right. So the first one I found... And we mentioned this a little bit earlier, is the idea that Dean and the Guilty Remnant are working together and they are potentially, um, and I think what you brought up a little bit when we're talking about Jill is you could even throw Amy into the mix. Yeah, potentially. Are they working together to, um, you know, Patty makes it very clear that Kevin is important to her and to their cause for some reason. So do you think there's a potential that they are working together to either drug Kevin or purposefully cause him to black out to seem crazy for a greater purpose. You know, a lot of these theories, I don't feel like they're very well thought out. So I don't have a lot of information on them as, as much as I just have sort of the talking point of Dean and the guilty remnant working together to drug Kevin, to cause him to black out for what purpose. Ultimately we don't know yet. Yeah. Does that seem plausible to you? Look, the alternative is that, Kevin Jr. is blacking out to the point where he is doing extremely complex, you know, kind of activities, uh, including having complex conversations with people. I find that hard to believe. Yeah. So, therefore, the alternatives, almost any alternative will equal, you know, the the alternative, you know, of, of Kevin just, yeah, he just blacks out and then he attacks people and has really in-depth conversations with people. Mm-hmm. You know, that just doesn't really, really work as well in my mind. So, yeah. So yeah, I'll take, I'll take crazy theory on that one for 200. Alex. So you think he's being drugged? Um, yeah. Or you think there's yeah. a potential at least? Yeah. I, I think, I think there's a, there's a, at least an equal potential. Mm-hmm. I'd probably say a little more that he's being drugged and these whole situations are being, you know, elaborately staged for him to have to deal with the next the next day so mm-hmm. you know think about amy being there to to bind up his wound right yeah. so maybe she is playing a, a a bigger role um in his life and um dean as well and what about the fact that the, the timing like you said uh jill uh cuts the dog loose but also amy leaves the same time that dean kind of leaves and you know so now kevin is kind of you know yeah. on his own again in a certain respect i don't know Maybe there's symmetry there. Maybe there's no symmetry at all. Yeah. Um, right now, I think it's a crazy theory, but not as crazy as Kevin suffering, you know, blackouts. Yeah, his 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 blackouts are a little, not a little. They are very vague. Like this idea that somebody would just at some point switch consciousnesses and go from being like this kind of normal guy to being this raging lunatic that's willing to kidnap and beat up a woman. Yeah. And with no, I mean, and in this episode we kind of see the switch, right? He's just laying in bed trying to go to sleep. So we're just to assume that he either falls asleep and then is, and then wakes up in such a state that, he he's just not conscious of what he's it just is exactly like he's you you don't go down to the bar and order drinks and kidnap somebody while you're just sleepwalking exactly like that's a little bit more so but i i will say i don't i first of all i don't think dean and guilt the guilty room are working together at all i don't think i just don't 
that's just well yeah that, no that that's look i i'd say it's 80 20 percent for me like 20 yeah. percent dean is working with the guilty remnant and he was part of that elaborate setup and he was trying to get he and the guilty remnant are working for the same odds to get kevin jr to wake up to his role in this whole thing yeah or that they're working cross prop uh purposes right now i still see them working at, at cross purposes yeah uh, another theory that has come up, and this came up a lot with the last episode, actually. And after hearing it, I've got the feeling that it's it's kind of been this ongoing theory. I don't know how I've missed it, um, but it's 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 the once I it was one of those things where once I heard it, I then started seeing it pop up kind of everywhere. But I could never really get um, a good answer for it or a good analogy for it. And it's the it's the Plato's cave. Um, story basically right. the, the philosophical story that plato created about people watching shadows right watching shadows the in the cave and then you know people manipulating their reality altered basically right and the best thing i got the best explanation i got was that the people in mapleton who were left behind are actually the people who were raptured and so they don't know what they're seeing i the the explanation I got it didn't make a whole lot of sense. So so oh, so basically, it sounds like what that person's trying to say is the people in Mapleton are the ones who were raptured. I guess, and that now they're the ones who are being subject to the manipulations of whoever is behind them. They are the ones looking at the shadows being cast on the wall. It sounds like is is what that person's trying to say. I guess I don't really know. That's the crazy. Thing. I didn't get any yeah good explanations for it. I was wondering maybe if you heard anything about it or if just the idea struck any chord with you or like no no I you know I feel like I don't even watch this show but the analogy works good for this. Um, there's a show called House where apparently mm-hmm. the running joke on House I watched that- House. Oh, did you? I watched most of it. Oh, look at you. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Well, then you, you could back me up on this. So one of the running jokes was um, people would try and diagnose everyone as having lupus. Lupus, yeah. And he'd be like, it's not lupus. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's like Plato's cave. Like, I feel like everybody kind of knows Plato's cave. And exactly. so whenever right. something kind of philo- philosophical comes up, like, ah, Plato's cave. Right. Yeah. That's Plato's cave. It's like, that's lupus. Yeah. yeah. That's a much nicer way than I would have put it but yes i i agree it, it just seems like you said it's just kind of like it's one of those it's like the it's like a very common idea that a lot of people know about so it's like let's work this in somehow yeah um the last or no two more things in the av club review and this is also something i saw come up later at, on uh, reddit they uh um sonia i think who wrote about it for av club mentions that she noticed significant movement with Matt's wife when um, Lori and Meg show up. And I was wondering if you picked up on that. It was also something that um, I did not came up on Reddit. Yeah. So when I went and so and again, it, I guess it kind I don't think Sonia was intimating this, but it can also speak to this idea that some people think maybe like Matt's wife is the manipulator of all of this somehow. <laughs> but um, so I went back and watched the scene and it's just as like. It's just this like continuity stuff where like it cuts to Lori and Meg and then it cuts back to Nora and like Matt's wife's head is in like a slightly different position. You know what I mean? Like that's all it is. Like right. you never actually see her move. Right. She's she broke just, for like, lunch. Her head. Yeah. Back. Her head is to the left 
cut to Lori Meg, they come back, and then her head is like slightly to the right. It just is like they just forgot where she was at. Right. <laughs> um, and the last one I wanted to bring up, and there's not much to say about it. But it's, I kind of like knew this would be coming up because of Lost, I think, uh-huh. because this was a big theory with Lost, right? Is the idea that everyone's in purgatory? Yeah, right. And and that was a theory with Lost, right? And and I didn't watch all of Lost. Isn't that how Lost ended? Pretty or is much. that the misconception? Oh, okay. So no, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so I'm sure that's why that's coming up. All right, uh, and and we'll finish with some leftover observations. I didn't have as much. Um, just because I think there was so much more in the episode. Yeah, yeah. And so much more that I liked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we'll run through some of these. Um, the first one that I noticed, the first one I thought of, and this was as soon as the episode started. And by the end of it, I was thinking, like, I think we could have, like, a Bernie situation, like that movie Bernie, or the, yeah. even the real true life story of <laughs> Bernie. Bernie. Why well, go to the movie and got the yeah, real story? Where it's like, um, I don't think... As many people would be upset if they came, if Kevin came back to town and like they found out that he killed Patty, as as upset as they would be like if he actually had a dog in his backyard who was barking twenty four hours a day <laughs> right. for like seven days a week. Right, like that's annoying. Right, right? Um, so that was the first thing I thought of because like the serial opens with that dog barking, just like yep. man, I'm watching this TV show and that dog is driving me crazy. Yeah, like shut the dog up. Um. Oh, the other thing that I noticed uh, was, so Meg has a very verbal out outbreak, right? Or like outburst, she loses yeah. outburst, she loses it on Matt, and she like bloodies him, yes. and she's screaming the f word. Yeah, and um, to me that was more jarring, I think, than Patty speaking. Huh. Even though I don't think of Meg as Meg. this sort of yeah, like great leader or whatever well yeah to to me meg shows the the failure of their training you know Mm -hmm. like meg is the new recruit and she obviously has no idea on their basic rules and and, like everything she yells after that is like meg do you know who you belong to exactly exactly (laughs) and that's what was like like i find it funny that meg is like i find it funny that meg could be this character that like just doesn't get it, get it right yeah. i think that's funny but at the same time like it it's it was even this one instance was so frustrating yeah. to see her yell and scream about what matt's doing when that's exactly what the guilty remnant are doing and no one calls her out on it like right. you know what i mean like like that's never like that's never revealed to her well yeah and so i could imagine that being like frustrating if it starts happening more than once yeah and and that to me that was the weakest scene in the whole thing like i even uh my wife is not interested in the show Mm -hmm. so i didn't have anybody so i kind of said to myself but as soon as she's like i'm not weak you know yeah i was like prove it yeah i was like prove it and like yep you know i mean like that that stuff to me was the weakest stuff in the episode because there's clearly a larger breakdown of communication going on here when meg turns she's like he'll he's doing this to every one of you you know i'm like yeah Yeah. they they know yeah there's a giant binder in your house where you've done it to everyone else everybody knows like what is going on i don't understand what you're right 
Well, you're dealing. Uh, and one interesting thing that did come from that is after her outburst, when she's sitting in Patty's office, she's watching TV, and the it's a she's watching you know whatever CNN or whatever it is, but it's a news show, and a reporter is you can hear a reporter talking about. Um, what does he say? It says the reporter says something about uh, an empty mass grave and um, miraculous resurrection. Uh, so I don't know if that's like kind of like just world building stuff or if it's just right. as like they're sort of creating this scaffolding for season two. You know what I mean? They're sort of just like introducing this idea that's going to appear later on. But I thought that was an interesting um, background tidbit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next thing that I observed, and I actually didn't observe this until I was reading, I think it was probably Brandon Ambrosino's write up again, but he mentions something about, he mentions Kevin wrestling with Dean. And I, I guess I didn't view it that way. The first time I watched the show Mm -hmm. with the specific word wrestling. And so then that paired with Dean calling himself a guardian Angel. angel. So I started thinking about the, the, the story in the Bible of Jacob wrestling with an angel slash God. Yeah. But again, I don't know enough hip. about the Bible to really yeah. know if there's any meaning to it or if it was just kind of like this, if it's, if I'm going down like Plato's cave territory, right. Right. Yeah, that, just like, yeah. This is the, this is one thing that I'm familiar with. So I'm going right. to wedge it into the show. Yeah. I think, I don't think that one fits so much. I think Jake, Jacob was fighting for a blessing. And yeah. Afterwards, he's touched on his hip and he has yeah. a limp. Yeah. If Kevin was limping more, maybe. Yeah. Um, and then uh, later on in the episode, we see Kevin um, finds his missing shirts, right, in the woods, which mm-hmm. I thought he might be really excited about, but he seems pretty he upset for it. some reason. <laughs> hated it. <laughs> yeah, it's it seems a little. And I guess that, too, could speak to, like, is he being set up? You know what I no, mean? No, no. Well, I mean, look. At this point, again, you're you're ramping up the the what what's the right word for it? The tension. No, and and like your believability factor is right. going way low. Yeah. You know, once you start saying like, "All right, so he has a a disassociative break when he sleeps. He goes out and finds Dean. Has long conversations with Dean. Assaults people. You know." kidnaps them then he goes onto the woods and hangs his shirts and you know like that you're, you're really starting to push it but if you say there are other people involved in this whole thing drugging him you know hanging up his shirts creating these yeah you know moments for him that seems a little more believable yeah yeah and the the last thing i'll touch on and i know we've talked about it in pretty much every podcast is just their use of the F word across the board for every single character is it just is it just is bad, right? It just is terrible. It's like and and what it made me think I don't know like you like you've I think you've said before, I don't know if it's like the HBO thing, right? Right. Or if it's like we're on premium cable so we can do whatever we want. So we're gonna have our characters all of our characters say the F word every other word. Right. I don't know if it's that, but it really reminded me of Deadwood, where 
a lot was made of the language used in Deadwood, right? And the F word and other curse words are used a lot in Deadwood. Yeah. But in Deadwood, it's like it works so well, yeah. right? And yeah. it's like it's written to a point to where it's almost like lyrical or poetic. Like right. it just it just works. And I think it, it's also because, you know, you've got Swearingen who is just as foul mouthed as can be. But then you have other characters who aren't. Right. right. So it's like you can't just have every single character constantly saying the F word like it just doesn't like some of their some of their um, forcing in of the F word in some of these sentences. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it does not work. It doesn't make grammatical yeah. or logical sense. Yeah. Or I think of Generation Kill. Like I love Generation mm-hmm. Kill. I think that's a great that's series. Right. Yeah. And they are swearing all the time in yeah. that like left or, and every single character is doing it right but again i think the writing is is up to it so i think the writing makes it work i think the characters make it work right i think in this one even if the writing's good i don't think the characters sell it all the time so it's like from jill to dean to patty to you know to Meg. Yeah. Like, I don't know if it's Liv Tyler's delivery of it, but she, I don't ever fully believe in, in when she uses it, you know what I mean? And so I, I find it now like kind of comical to how and what characters are going to be squeezing it in to, yeah. to what. Um, yeah. I think some of it is the setting too. Like, you know, in Deadwood, you're looking at people who are living in like total squalor and just like filth and like you know Al Swearingen was a was a pimp and he was a murderer and all this and the and the and the kids in Generation Kill are you know they're in a war zone right they're like fighting for their lives quote unquote or they're you know trained to kill so it seems appropriate whereas when the mayor of a city and the chief of police are having a conversation (laughs) I'm not expecting them to be using the f word every other you know what I mean it's just like it just, man, it just is, I, you know, we can stop, we'll stop talking about it after this, <laughs> after this, but it just is like, man, you know, give it a, give it a rest. Like, it's not that important. We need to start like a leftover swear jar. <laughs> like we'll, we'll put it online and I don't know what we can, maybe we'll just give it to a charity. Yeah. We'll just be like anybody who listens to this podcast will all donate a nickel. And yeah. At the end, we'll we'll make ourselves feel better and give it to a charity. It'll be like a thousand bucks. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it. Um, we did it. Yeah. Uh, you can we we. Uh, I don't know if I talked about this. I know I didn't talk about it last episode. But I don't know if I talked about it two episodes ago. I'm sure I have. But we've got a Twitter for the show specifically, so you can follow us on Twitter at Brown Blue White, and I use that to you know, uh, post anything interesting that I find I'll upload, you know, like the, the text messages that I get from HBO throughout the week, anything they send me in the mail, I'll put on there. Um, so you can follow us on Twitter at Brown blue white. You can follow our personal accounts on Twitter, uh, which I don't think you'll find much leftovers stuff, uh, related stuff on there, but you know, uh, it's you might find something else you like. Yeah, uh, I tweeted about a toilet seat. Yeah, there weekend. you go. Um, I'm at Blizzard uh, with nine Z's, and Keith is at Things Come Right. Still at Things Come Right. I keep threatening to change it. I know, but you don't follow through. 
you can also email us. You can and you can find our email addresses in the show notes, as long as our Twitter handles for the show and our personal ones. All of it's in the show notes. Um, music, uh, the music credits are in the show notes. Go to the show notes uh, if you if you're interested in any of that information. But uh, that does it for this week. So we'll uh, we'll see you next week after episode nine.